Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Our guest today might be best known in some circles as Alex Honnold's mom. But in other circles, Deirdre Wallenick is known for being the oldest woman to climb El Capitan at the age of 66 after taking up climbing in her late 50s. Others will know Deirdre as a writer, novelist, teacher, or linguist, or for being the mother of another committed athlete, her daughter Stacia, or for being a musician and orchestra conductor, or for picking up long distance running in her 50s and becoming a marathoner. And after you listen to this conversation, you will primarily know Deirdre as someone who continues to push her comfort zone again and again and again. I recently spoke to Deirdre about her excellent new memoir, The Sharp End of Life, A Mother's Story, and I encourage you all to read this exceptionally well-written book because I am confident that it has some very important things to teach all of us in addition to being an extremely interesting report of a very interesting life that is still very much in the making. Among other things, Deirdre and I discuss what shaped her philosophy on parenting, how she's managed to become more courageous with age, and the importance of leading life on our own terms and continuing to challenge ourselves and grow. This conversation felt particularly fitting given that it is Mother's Day on Sunday. So to all of the mothers out there, including my own, who taught us to challenge the limits and expectations of others, we say thank you. And now let's get to my conversation with Deirdre Wallenick. Well, Deirdre, how are you today and where are you today? I'm fine, thanks. And I'm in uh, Carmichael, which is a suburb of Sacramento, California. And you are, I believe, currently home and uh, resting still. <laughs> yes, recovering. <laughs> yes, recovering. still. Yeah, I had, had surgery on my foot and it's taking a very long time to come back. This, this injury, was this a climbing thing? No, not at all. It's a lifelong damage. It just kept getting worse and worse, and I had to have it fixed. And I was in pain, um, you know, walking all the time. But I, I put it off until after El Cap. <laughs> <laughs> Priorities. I, yeah, yeah, exactly. I had the opportunity. I, I'm not getting any younger. And I was worried that Alex would not be around or available after much after the movie came out and, and all that. So I... Uh, I waited till after after we did El Cap, and then I had it done. Climbing El Cap, put, putting off surgery. For anyone who knows a bit about you, this is entirely unsurprising news now. Um, but, uh, <laughs> which I guess I guess we'll we'll be talking about it and exploring a bit today. But well, listen, I'm I'm very pleased to be speaking with you now. This is uh, our Mother's Day edition, the Blister Podcast, and um, we have this book, The Sharp End of Life. Should we explain the sharp end? My entire life has been on the sharp end. The sharp end of the rope in climbing is the more dangerous end. It's the lead end of the person who goes up first. And if that person takes a fall while they're climbing, it's doubly as disastrous as any other fall. They fall, you know, the distance back down to their last gear and then the, the, that same distance again below it in, a, in, a, in an arc and so uh, the sharp end is the dangerous end, the, the lead end, the, the, the trying end, the, 
you know, the harder in every way. And that kind of summed up my life <laughs> you know, to a large extent. Let's talk about this life of yours. This is a hard one to sum up. There just have been so many chapters from your own upbringing to parenting to your academic career to music and art. So the first thing is I'd like to hear a little bit about your own background as you were a child and, and your parents. Well, I grew up in New York City, started life in Manhattan. When I was three, we moved to Queens. It was a very, very international neighborhood. It was Jackson Heights, which is the New York Times has called several times called the most international neighborhood in the country. So every every house on my block, they, they spoke a different language. They were from a different place, had different culture, different music, different everything. So I grew up using lots of languages uh, all the time, you know, but to be sociable with their mother or father or, or to greet grandma when she came to the door. You had to be, you know, sociable and conversant in many languages. But but the kids, my generation, only spoke English. I mean, parents back then, after they had lived through World War II, it was devastating. And they didn't want their children to speak anything but English. You know, we were Americans now, you know. So, so... All the old people in my family, and there were a lot of them, you know, they had all come over on the boat uh, from Poland and then through Ellis Island. And uh, my parents were first generation, both of them, and first generation in this country, born here. And so the all the old people, when they'd get together for a family gathering, whatever, um, all the adults spoke Polish only. And all the kids spoke English only. <laughs> so there was this dichotomy, you know, adults did not speak with kids. They had nothing to say to each other. So it was a very different kind of upbringing. And they had the all the old old country mindsets about how to bring up children too. And that was always also very different from what you encounter nowadays here in this country. So uh, when I, 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 my compromise with them was, with my parents was to, uh, do a year of study abroad. I studied in France for my junior year of college and uh, that kind of changed my life, shifted my world outlook a lot. So talk about this year abroad. You, it shifted your outlook how? Well, it was, for, it was the very first time I was ever away from home, one thing. You know, so I learned a lot about myself. You know, when you go live on your own, you learn a lot about yourself, perforce. And I was doing all this in French. <laughs> And I made a lot of friends in Europe, which I still have, you know, and it changed my life in a lot of ways. Just everything, basically, <laughs> a whole a, a whole restart, a whole remake, if you will. But but then I came back and I finished college at Queens College, commuting from home. I still in in that Eastern European mindset, children lived at home with their parents until until the boy got married, and then and until until the girl got married and some man took care of her from then on, you know, that's the way it was. And so we lived at home until we were teachers, both of us. So then you find reason to head to California. Talk a bit about this jump from New York to California. Well, first, first it was my parents jumped. They decided to retire to Pennsylvania. Back. My mother still had a house. She was from Pennsylvania. My father was a New Yorker. And so they decided to retire there and they made this decision unilaterally as it were uh, parents decided everything for everybody in the family back then and so uh, the boy was going to stay my brother was going to stay in the family house in new york and the girl of course was going to move with her parents but <laughs> it didn't work out that way i chose to stay in new york uh, in my 
teaching job, and they did not understand that. So they moved away back to Pennsylvania. John stayed in the house, and I got the street. So I had to fend for myself. I had to find a house, an apartment, and found a roommate and all that stuff. So the next few years, I, I was tasting liberty a little bit. I was on my own, and I, I went to California once or twice, too. I had a great aunt and uncle who lived in San Diego. And I went to visit them and fell in love with California. And then I met Charlie while I was out there, my husband-to-be, and fell in love with him. And, and, and after a few years, I decided to move out there, got a job in Southern California. There's a, there's a version of your story where it seems like there was this late embrace of the new and the adventurous. And I wonder how much that resonates with you, whether we ought to think of this as a late development or whether it's like, no, are you not paying attention? When I was in my you know, teenage years and early 20s, there was this, this deep desire for this freedom. I realized all of this when I was like three and a half. <laughs> okay, even earlier. However, my mother was handicapped. You know, she had had polio. I was her arms and legs. And this is a very, very heavy responsibility. And I couldn't, in all conscience, you know, this was hammered into us, you know, from birth that we had to. You know, when she spoke, we had to hop to it. We had to come running because she couldn't run after us. Even even as toddlers, we knew that we had to go running when mommy spoke, you know. So um, this is a, a, an awesome responsibility and heavy duty, you know, of mine. And so I just buried all of my own choices. I just buried who I was for many years and did my duty. And, you know... Um, was the perfect daughter, as it were. And then uh, after they moved away, obviously they didn't need me that way anymore. I was free to explore who I might be, you know, and so let that out. And uh, it took many years, took many years because of so many years of repression, if you, you want to call it that. So, you know, started, uh, it's kind of started blossoming when I moved to California. I know it's a question you get asked a lot, you know, this like, boy, how do you feel about Alex doing all of these very risky things? And you tend to say things like, no, no, I, I don't worry about that. I trust Alex. And I thought having read your backstory where you really weren't allowed, you, your parents didn't put you in a position to say, we trust your judgment. We'll, we'll let you make this call. And it, it really was one of, I think, I think a lot of times, you know, we end up maybe repeating the value systems that we, that were modeled to that us. Were, right, right. That we're born into. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't think, think it through. Sure cannot be said that you made that mistake. Uh, no, I thought, thought it through, like I said, at three and a half and I knew how screwy this was, but, but I also knew that that was my duty to, you know, be helpful and to stay there and do my duty. So as you learn more about, you know, these risky and dangerous activities that, that Alex in particular was up to, were there moments when you were like, look, I actually probably as a concerned parent would love it maybe if you didn't do that, but I'm sure as hell not going to tell you not to pursue the things you're passionate about. Cause I know what that feels like. Exactly. That's exactly it. I, I 
vowed, if you want to call that, decided when I was three and a half that if I ever had children, I would never make them feel like I felt then. And, and, and I, you know, I watched my parents. I observed. I, I, I became a... I had to live in, inside my head because I couldn't really live outside my head. You know, she, she was in control of everything, you know, basically both of them. Um, and that was the old European mindset. You know, the parents are in charge, you know, so that kids just obey. Um, so I had to live in, in, inside my head, as it were, and I observed them as parents and I knew I recognized you know what was good and what was bad in terms of raising um, trustworthy children if you want to call it that raising children that you can trust and, and relate to they didn't relate to us emotionally in any way they were the parents we were the children and that was it you know um, they, they didn't relate to us as people they never saw us as people they just saw us as their children you know it was very different and I think that Generally across the board, that was the Eastern European, old European, old world kind of parental mindset. And uh, it's unfortunate <laughs> because you miss out on a lot. And I knew even when I was small that I, I didn't want to miss out like they were missing out. So what do you do these days, let's say, with your children, Stacia and Alex, if something arises where you think, yeah, I think that's a bad idea? How do you handle this in in the real world? Uh, they know that I trust their judgment. They, they both know that. And I, I may voice some of my, not concerns exactly, but questions about what they want or, or want to do or intend to embark on. Um, but I would never phrase it as, you know, you shouldn't do that because I know that doesn't work. <laughs> I know that's useless. Um, and, you know, you got to, as a parent, you have to pick your battles. You know, it's like like going up on the roof when Alex was a, a, a really small child. He always wanted to go up on the roof, always wanted to go up on the roof. And one day I was in the house and I heard the roof crunching and I knew <laughs> what was going on. We went outside. There he was up on the roof and he was having a wonderful time and he was so secure and so safe. And so we came to the agreement that, okay, anytime you go up on the roof from now on, clean out the gutters. <laughs> you know and he did and he was happy to do it and he's always happy to do it and so you have to pick your battles and, and realize what's not winnable but convincible you know i did not see it that there was a chore attached <laughs> it's like you can go do that kind of dangerous thing just uh you know just make sure you do this one chore uh -huh. i like that you're That's gonna get something good. out of it and i'm gonna get something out of it. Yeah. That's a win-win approach to parenting <laughs> Any other favorite suggestions that you just think either, man, I see this mistake that parents seem to repeat a lot, or if it's not a mistake, you just think, man, I just think this is one of the most important things a parent can do. Generally speaking, I mean, the single most important thing parents should not do is to put their own limits or aspirations, if you will, on their children, you know, try, them, try to make them a little mini me. You know, and I, I've seen that play out so many times. And that's what our parents tried to do. They want, you know, they wanted us to grow up and be just like them. And, oh, God, I did not want to do that. But, um, yeah, limits. This, this thing about limits. You know, you're a girl, so you're supposed to do this. 
or not do that. And, you know, to put your own limits on kids is, you do them a terrible disservice. Um, like, like my son only wanted to climb, uh, you know, forever since he was born. That's all he ever wanted to do is get up higher on something. You know, any toy was a means to get up higher. We'd walk to the park. Stacia and I were content to walk on the ground, but Alex always had to walk on something higher, like a, a bridge or a trestle or a, a coping, you know, garden wall, something. He had to be up higher. So the other sports didn't interest him. You know, he soccer and, and football and all that stuff. It just left him cold. He, he just wanted to climb. This did not set well with other parents. And I got so much advice about how to make him more normal, you know? And you have to really, really be careful with that word normal. You know, what's normal? What's appropriate for you? What's appropriate for your child, especially? You don't have the right to tell them what's normal. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm not advocating something like, I don't know, evil, can evil, you know, doing wild stuff. Um, but Alex was very, very careful and he was very sure footed. And I could see that he was very careful about what he did. He knew what he could do and I could see that. But, but to the other parents, the parents, you know, at the preschool and at elementary school and people I talk with, they, they were always giving me advice about how to make him slow down and be more normal so I could have a little bit of life too because <laughs> it really ran me ragged. I was always exhausted. But I was exhausted in a good way. And he was a wonderful little boy. And he, and he, but, but his, his version of normal was different than other parents' version of normal. And so that's the biggest thing to be wary of. Your child may be, you know, let them follow their own path. And a lot of parents have trouble with that. It's kind of wild to me. And I'm not sure that we're getting any better at this. I, I'm not sure that parents today, may, maybe, maybe, and I mean, I don't know how we would, you know, conduct a worldwide survey on this, but it seems to me rather than just being some societal norm, it seems a bit more biological than that or something intrinsic where there is this temptation to say, yeah, like, I'm going to raise this person to be in my own image as opposed to being like, I'm going to raise an independent thinking, hopefully high functioning adult. Right. Exactly. That's, that's the crux of the matter right there. A lot of parents don't want to do that. A lot of parents don't realize what that means. You know, do you have a theory on why? It's, it's easier to just buy into what you're given to buy into repeating the way you were brought up or buy into other people's fears, you know? Um, a lot of people are afraid of a lot of things and there's really no reason for it. But I mean, it's, you know, like fear of heights or fear of snakes or fear of falling or whatever. Um, I grew up in a very fearful family. Everybody was afraid of everything. They wouldn't go out into nature because there were snakes and they wouldn't do this and they wouldn't do that because, of, and I knew when I was three that this was ridiculous. Um, I don't know how, you train yourself out of that. I, I'm not sure about that, but but it requires thought, and a lot of people um, parent by instinct, not by thought, and that's that's a that's a dangerous kind of slippery slope to parent by instinct because your instincts are fine, but you have to think through where they go, where they lead, you know, where what the result of that would be. 
tell me a little bit about Stacia, if you don't mind. I know I, the bit I know is that she seems to be passionate about bikes, which is going to get a lot of high fives around these parts, and um, lives in Portland. But I think Alex's uh, story is becoming rather well documented in these last couple of years. But he was only one of two kids. <laughs> exactly, exactly. She, she's uh, the big sister. She took care of him. She's two years older, and she was his little mama. She took care of him very well when they were little. They were wonderful together. They're still wonderful together. They're the best of friends. She's also a, an extreme and uh, dedicated athlete. She, uh, she's a very good climber. She's a better climber than I am, she, but she, it's not her sport of choice, you know. She enjoys climbing too, but her she has two sports of choice. That's running, long distance running, and um, cycling, you know, bicycling. And she's outstanding at both. And she's kind of like Alex in that they have no limits, <laughs> if you want to call it that. They can just go and go and go. She goes on thousand mile bike adventures by herself with her camping gear and uh, thinks nothing of it. <laughs> I mean, she biked. Her last one was not her last one, but her last biggest one was from, uh, she biked from Portland down to South Lake Tahoe. Overall, I think she had to cross three mountain ranges to do that and, uh, and just camping all the way. And she just enjoys that. It just feeds her soul. She's so happy when she does these things and she comes back and just talks about it for, for years. You know, it just feeds her soul. That's her passion. And, and running does as well. I want to ask you about the fact that your family, uh, I don't know, it, it feels like this is becoming just in one of the most well-documented families in like the outdoor world. And um, I, that's got to just be strange, perhaps interesting or exhilarating or difficult. I don't know, but I'd, I'd love to, as you have this book and, you know, we read a bit in Alone, Alex's book, Alone on the Wall and Free Solo, the film has come out. Talk to me a little bit about having these family dynamics just kind of presented for public consumption. It doesn't really affect us in any way. I mean, Alex and I are, are liking that. The, the hype, the, the exposure and all that is just, it's just out there. It's a different world. It's not us. And it doesn't affect us in any way, really. I mean, his film got an Oscar. I mean, but but his 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 Oscar, his own personal uh, glory moment, or whatever you want to call it, his own Oscar kind of moment was when he topped out on on El Cap, and then his friends, his his colleagues, and his friends started you know texting and emailing him. That was his reward. The movie is just hype for him, you know, and and the book uh, the book is more meaningful. As a writer, you know, a book is more meaningful than just a, a movie would be to a subject. Of, I don't know. Maybe I'm generalizing, overgeneralizing. But, but I, I mean, I wrote every word of the book, and, and he just climbed. I mean, he just – he was would have climbed it anyway. And so to him, it was no big deal. He just climbed it anyway, and then they made a movie. So the movie was theirs, not his. And it doesn't really – you know, it's, it's just a movie. It's just hype. I mean, he – none of us – um, grew up together watching screens. I mean, I didn't have a television in the house when they were kids. And uh, they never got in the habit of using screens much. My daughter still has a little flip phone. She doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't do that stuff. And um, so we don't know any of the, the stars and the, the big movies and all that stuff. It's not our world. 
and uh, books are more our world than movies. Um, so, but it it doesn't affect our life together as family at all, really. None of it. I I guess I was curious if you ever had to if there ever needed to be kind of like a family check-in, like I, I just am trying to imagine like if, if my family did something, I wrote a book, my mom wrote a book, et cetera, even if it wasn't like, Hey, that's not how that happened. How dare you? You know, but even if it's just like, wow, that's an interest you, that's an interesting take. Yeah. 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 We had some discussions about that more so with my daughter because she's a very literary person. She was an English major and she taught school for a while and, and loves to read, um, loves to write. So um, more so with her, because it's hard to pin down Alex for a kind of for a heart to heart conversation. He's always on the road. You know, he's always coming or going. Most of our conversations, most of our telephone conversations happen from airports when he's in an airport. Uh, when he's you know, coming or going, he calls me from the airport when he has a couple hours to, to wait or whatever. You know, and we chat for a long time. But most of his conversations with me nowadays are from airports, um, which is indicative of his life. So, yeah, of course, we had discussions about it, but more so with Stacia because she's stable. She lives at home. <laughs> She'll love to call me from an airport and hurry through it. So, yeah, of course we did. Obviously, there's Alex's climbing accomplishments. Those are well documented. But honestly, the thing that I just really go back to a lot. And, and, and one of the reasons I re respect him so much is he is always talking about books and talking about what he's reading now. And, and they're really good. And it's like, man, using that, that platform. It's wonderful. Isn't it? <laughs> it's wonderful. I just get so happy when it's like, here he is. This is another fantastic book that just got on the radars of hundreds of thousands of people who maybe weren't familiar with it. And I think that and then the Honold Foundation. Yes, the foundation. Yeah, I'm very, very proud of him for that foundation. Very gratified that both kids are such thoughtful human beings. Well, and it sounds like we might know who to uh, thank, at least in part, for some of this. But um, <laughs> yeah, raising literary thoughtful kids who appreciate reading and are... are and are out to save the world, both of them. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty good. Pretty heady, yeah. I want to ask you a bit about the concept of courage. Do you think you've, you personally have become more courageous over time, less courageous? Does it sort of seem like you've had this thing since you were three, three and a half years old? That's a big question. I could write another book about that. <laughs> <laughs> Next book. You're welcome. Just <laughs> yeah, right. Um, Yes, courage grows for sure. Uh, you have to feed it and you have to train it. And uh, I did not really know whether I was courageous in any way. Um, I was a, I knew I was a good, good teacher, and I was uh, an okay mom. And I, and I, I didn't know if I was courageous before I really started this world of extreme sports, I guess you'd call it. I'm not sure. I hate to call it extreme. I'm not, I'm not an extremist in any way, but, but I started running and then I started running some more and some more and pushing my limits. I had never really pushed my physical limits before. I had pushed my other kinds of limits, the emotional ones. I started out when I was a little kid and, and, and I went through that miserable marriage and pushed my own um, limits that way. You know, um, 
But that's different from physical limits. And the physical limits, of course, are, are mental as well. I mean, you have to talk yourself through these things and talk, talk yourself into these things. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Once I started running, especially once I started climbing, <laughs> I be, began to realize what, you know, like, I hesitate to call it courage. I guess it is, but I don't think of myself as particularly brave. But I had to learn to beat down the fear, um, you know, while climbing uh, in so many ways. There are so many little stories about that in the book. Uh, the first time, first time they took me on a multi-pitch climb. I was like terrified. I was absolutely paralyzed with fear. And you have to, you either succumb and never go back and do that again, or you talk yourself through it. And boy, did I talk to myself. <laughs> Those first few years of climbing, boy, did I talk to myself. And it's, it's an exhilarating experience to learn to tame that, to learn to beat that down. And when I, decided to do El Cap. Boy, did I have to talk myself through that. Holy cow, there was a lot of fear involved in that. <laughs> An awful lot of fear involved in that, uh, that that Alex doesn't realize. You know, he, he, he doesn't think of it in those terms, the terms that we think of it in. He just doesn't understand why you could be afraid of being up there. Or, or hanging on the rope, or lowering yourself out sideways, or, or any of the other things that I had to learn to do. He doesn't see it as anything fear, fearsome, you know, and because he's done it all his life and that's no big deal to him. Uh, that's where that no big deal stuff, you know, they called him no big deal Honold for many years. But to him, it is no big deal. You know, it's like, it's kind of like, to me, it's no big deal to conduct an orchestra, you know, but for most people, that's like uh, absolutely unthinkable to get up and first to know what to do and, and to be able to do it and to organize, you know, it's, it's a question of habit. Fear really is a question of habit. He talks about that in his movie when he talks about, he doesn't ignore the fear or, or conquer the fear. He just, he moves his comfort zone out farther and farther until it's no longer fearsome for him. And I think that's the basis of courage. You, you know, get more and more comfortable doing what you're doing and then it's, it no longer terrifies you. <laughs> you know, the first time I got on the rope on an oil cap to practice jugging, to practice ascending the rope, I was alone. And uh, I was out there on L cap uh, alone and going up this rope and it, it was absolutely terrifying. And there's so many things that can happen and I wasn't sure if I was able to handle them if they did happen. And, and you just have to think it through and talk yourself through it. And so, yeah, there was an awful lot of learning and courage building that went on in those, those few years, an awful lot. It's still going on. Yeah, well, clearly with you. And, and I think that's why your story and this life of yours that you're putting together, it is so inspiring and such a good reminder for all of us, all of us, always, like, the the gift of still being alive is that like we get to go expand those and extend those comfort zones and the world just gets bigger and more interesting it seems right right more 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 fulfilling more gratifying more everything yeah richer richer for sure and it's it's funny you talking about not the first time you went to climb the second time you went to climb when you kind of roped up and remembered how to put a harness on and then you're like, oh, wait, kind of takes two. 
but as you write about, you were like, well, um, boy, I don't really, I'm new to this gym and, but I'm going to walk up and just, and I think you say I timid, timidly, very timidly. It was very <laughs> hard to do. Very hard to do. Yeah. Cause I knew I wasn't a climber. I knew I didn't know what I was doing, you know, but I thought that was great. Right. And again, we talk about like, yeah, free soloing El Cap, very scary thing to do for 99.99% of people ever. But that thing about being willing to extend yourself and walk up to a stranger in a gym and just, hey, can I belay you or can I get a belay? Uh, scary in its own right. And I think m millions of people probably can relate more to that experience. Right. But this is how we expand our world. Like, get past that. Exactly. Another thing I, I wanted to ask you about was this line, you say the vocabulary of climbing is so specialized. We do in a way set up certain barriers of entrance, arguably, by just having these really technical specialized vocabularies. Is this something you think that we ought to think harder about, be more cognizant of as members of these different communities? And if, I don't know, I just wondered, given your own experience, if you thought, Guys, like if we just talked plainer? No, no, it's the other way around. No, it's, just, it's the other way around. People who are deeply into whatever, let's, let's talk about climbing. People who are deeply into it or good climbers, uh, you know, accustomed to that life, talk in the jargon of climbing. This is totally normal. We all do that. But Americans especially, but most people, but Americans especially because most Americans are monolingual and they're not accustomed to dealing with other languages um, outside of New York City anyway. <laughs> um, but most people are loath to, they, they, they're afraid to ask, what does that mean? And you have to. If you want to join a group that's speaking in jargon, you have to know the language. And if you don't know the language, you cannot join. And most Americans, especially, but most people are afraid to say, A, that they don't know what they're talking about, that the other people are talking about, and B, that they would like an explanation of that, you know, whatever it is. So they're unaccustomed to breaking into a conversation saying, excuse me, what does that mean? But growing up using a lot of languages, this this was everyday normal to me. I would ask, oh, what, what did that word mean? What, how do you say this? You know, what, what did that mean? So, yeah, oh, absolutely. It's, it needs changing, but the changing does not, it should not be on the part of the, the groups who speak this language. You know, you should never be afraid to, you know, just say, hey, you just said, you know, whatever. What does that mean? Could you explain, you know, that verb or that whatever it's it's funny, you know, on um, on Blister, we do these long form reviews of skis or climbing shoes or whatever. And it's something I think about and we talk about all the time. Like, so what I've said is that we want our reviews to be very clearly written. But there are times where there is a vocabulary to these things. And so how do you find that balance and the thing that I have consistently said, and I don't know how frequently we hit the mark or not, but I think about, you know, the new skier or the new climber, 
if they're reading one of our reviews, I'm certain they will not understand one or two of these terms. What I believe is you don't have to be an expert to read our stuff. The thing you have to be is passionate about the area. And if you're willing to go back and read a paragraph a couple times, we think we can be a pretty good friend to you in terms of bringing you up on this stuff and helping you understand these things. So it's in, it's very interesting to get your take, which is don't apologize for the kind of language of the tribe or the community, but don't be afraid to get in there. Don't be afraid to ask the quote unquote dumb question. Exactly. Exactly. That's what anybody who's learning an, another language needs to get comfortable with. And Americans who are mostly by and large monolingual are not comfortable with that. And that and that can be taught in school, but but it's not. It's unfortunate, but it's not. What um in the broadest sense, broadest sense of the term now, what language are you currently learning? The language that I'm currently involved in learning is Greek. Um, I've gone twice, I think it's twice now, to a climb in Greece. And uh, I grew up with Greeks next door to us in Jackson Heights. So, so I knew a little bit, and I know how, how it should sound. You know, I'm, I'm a very good mimic, having grown up with many sound systems around me. So the first time we went, I you know, studied, I boned up on, 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 the, on the computer. There are a lot, a lot of places online to learn whatever language you want. And I know how to learn language. It's very easy for me. So um, the first time we went there, I was uh, not, I wouldn't call it conversant, but I could be sociable. When we hitchhiked a little bit to get to the, some of the crags and, you know, I could thank them and be sociable with them and ask them where they lived and things like that. So for, for the next time I go back, I want to be a, a lot more conversant. So I'm working on that. But we're talking about modern conversational Greek as opposed yes. to doing... Yes. Well, everyday Greek, not classical Greek. Okay. Everyday Greek. Yeah. Some someday, well, maybe I can nudge you into the classical stuff. Okay. We can. We can uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Maybe we can read some Marcus Aurelius or Epictetus or or uh, Plato together. So, I want to jump back uh, to it to another very big topic of conversation. There is um, there's a, a phrase that you use in your book that just kind of knocked me back, and you talked about the quote, the, the devastating absence of connection. And I made a comment to you before we started recording this conversation where I said, it's funny, you've written this book and a lot of people are going to be like, oh, who knew Alex Honnold's mom climbs or, oh, she's a climber and a musician and, uh, you know, a, and a, a language expert. But I think that one of the most valuable things that may come from this book you've written is talking about the importance of connection, the ways that we fail to connect. And I just think, you know, in all of the, in all of the bylines and all of the re reviews of this book, I kind of feel like maybe that is not going to be touched on. And yet I think it might end up being one of the most valuable things for many of the people that read this book. Does that resonate with you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, the connection. Connection is everything in this world, really. And the deeper the connection, the, 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 the better the, the planet. <laughs> you, 
to be in the broadest sense, you know, because that's what ties us all together. And so when you negate that connection, you say, no, no, you, you don't matter. Uh, you know, you're just a child. Um, there, there are a lot of people who just treat children. I mean, you know, talking baby talk to a little kid, it, it's so annoying. That says clearly and plainly, I'm an adult. You're just a child. And children are not just a child. Children are small adults. They think things through in the same terms, different words. You know, they don't have the same concepts, adult vocabulary, as it were, for things. But I knew things when I was three and a half that I know now. And I knew that, you know, I was aware of it. But a lot of people treat children like a different breed, you know, almost. And that's just unfortunate, very unfortunate. It, it cuts you out from a lot of life's best moments. I'm curious how that dynamic that you lived through uh, on a parent-child dynamic, how that translated then to, or if it translated to, an ability to connect with friends. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. That, that's, that, that permeates every aspect of your life. You know, if you're treated as a non-entity, as it were, uh, it shapes, you know, what you think of yourself and, and how you interact with other people, for sure. It took me years to get over that. And and how did you get over that? Was that just a kind of force of will, this extending of the comfort zone? A little bit of force of will, a lot of journaling. <laughs> journaling is the key to just about everything. Journaling is a marvelous tool and you can think things, it, it forces you to think things through. It was a really, really touching moment in the book. And, and you, by the way, we got to talk a little bit about your writing because it's fantastic. It's like what you are able to communicate in just a few words. But you're talking again about your early days of going to the gym and climbing. I believe you asked a guy named Mark if he needed a belay. And then it just says, you know, and Mark and I are still friends. And then you mentioned Michelle and you talk about climbing with her and, and Michelle and I are still friends. And again, the power of those two sentences, given some of the backdrop, uh, there's a lot going on under some pretty simple words. Again, back to the point you've already made well, but connecting is everything. Right. Right. And I, I didn't really, I didn't, I didn't really have lifelong friends in New York because I wasn't able to, and I w was stuck at home basically. And it's just, it, it last, lasted a long time. And then little by little, I talked myself out of that. It's kind of like, like uh, talking myself into climbing. And uh, the friends I've made as an adult here in California, as a climber, as an athlete, as a runner and all that, those, those friends are forever. So let's do talk a little bit about writing, which is then seems impossible to talk about writing without talking a bit about reading. I'd, I'd, I'm curious, some of your favorite authors or related question, some of the people you read who maybe influenced your own writing style? That's a tough question. I've been influenced by a lot of writers uh, all all during my lifetime. Um, I mean, it started early on. Uh, I did a lot of reading as a kid because I lived at home, a quiet kind of life. I just listened for my mother's call. And I was a reader. I played the piano. I did all kinds of things, quiet things. My life was kind of empty of people in any meaningful way. You know, there were people around, but 
they didn't really have anything to do with me as a person. Me as a little girl, yes. Me as a daughter, yes. But me as a person, no. And so there's a there there's a, a whole string, whole slew of, of books. Um, I guess it's mostly in the 1930s, 40s, 50s they were being written uh, with dogs as the protagonist. You know, like like Lassie kind of books. You know, Silver Sheen, King of Sled Dogs. You know that kind of thing. And the dog, but the dogs were all very anthropomorphic. You know, they they, they were the main character, and uh, and so that shaped me as a reader and as a writer uh, at the beginning. So I got started reading and writing that way. Um, but I don't really have a favorite author. It it varies wildly depending on what state of my life I'm in and, and what kind of things I'm reading. Um, right now I've been totally taken by the, the producing two books in three years because <laughs> my French textbook is coming out soon too. And I've been working on both at the same time. It's a wild ride and it completely, I mean, I don't have time to read anymore. It's a terrible thing to say for a writer, but I haven't, I do squeeze in a little bit here and there, especially uh, when my kids recommend a book to me, I always read it. And it's always interesting. It's always fascinating. My son recommended a book to me. He, he left uh, a lot of books when he when he moved out. He left a lot of the books that he had read and he said, I don't need these anymore. So I, I looked at them. And one that he recommends, he doesn't even remember recommending this to me, but he did. And I read it. It's called Rats. It's about rats in New York City. And I looked at the book. I said, Ugh, what the heck do I want to read that for? It turned out to be a page turner. <laughs> I never would have picked it up, you know, left to my own devices. But Alex read it. He said it was good. Okay, okay, I'll look at it. And I started it, and geez, it was a page turner. It was fascinating. And so, yeah, I always read anything that my kids recommend to me because it 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 takes me out of my own world and into this other place, like rats. <laughs> I never would have picked that up. And uh, Stacia is an avid reader, and she's always recommending things to me too. What's What's the last best recommendation you got from Stacia? Um, it was some poetry. She loves poetry, and 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 she picks really nice ones. And I, yeah, so she's uh, she's a always a welcome voice when she recommends something. I always look look at it, read it. So yeah, I won't quote any authors' names, but a, a wildly eclectic mix of reading. When the kids were younger, um, it was Ender's Game. Have you have you read the Ender's Game? I have not. You need to read it. You need to read it, especially as a, a guy into philosophy and all that. You need to read Ender's Game. Um, and before that, even before that, um, when I was a, like a teenager in high school and beyond that, um, science fiction was always my thing. But the quality science fiction, there's a lot of you know junk out there. But the quality, like you know Arthur C. Clarke and Isaac Asimov, the quality science fiction has everything in it. Everything, all the world and mind stuff of life that that you need, it's all in there. Do Have you worked out some things then in terms of if I said, what is your life philosophy? Or do you now have these things about elements of the good life? Hmm. That's another book. <laughs> there you go. I've given you two. One on courage, one on the good life. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's another book. Um, oh, yeah, for sure. I've been honing my my view on all those things. 
as I've grown as a climber, as I've grown as a parent and all that stuff. It has a lot to do with not listening to other people. <laughs> I don't mean not listening to them. Listen to them for sure, but not buying into their limits for you. That is where a lot of unfortunate stuff in life comes from. Not buying into or accepting other people's versions of you, other people's limits limits for you. And most of us do in a way. Most of, to a large extent, a lot of us do that. And uh, it has to be a conscious choice. I would venture to say that most, or maybe the majority, or I'm not sure about numbers, but a, a, a large number of people live their life without thinking it through at all, without thinking about who they are, what they want to to have on their tombstone, as it will, as, as you, as as it were, to have have people say about them when they're gone or to what kind of effect they want to have on the world or any of this stuff, which is the overarching stuff. I mean, you know, most people don't think about things like this. They just live from day to day. It's a mindset that you have to develop um, little by little. And it's so important and it's so overlooked. And I'm not sure where that comes from. If you have to be born with that or, or you can develop it. So um, that's it's a really huge question that you asked, and, and like I said, that could be a whole book. <laughs> Maybe someday it will. Um, but you know, I'd be happy to go into it with you someday. See, now you've got a good reason to learn that classical Greek, right? right? Exactly. So you can get into yeah. the Nicomachean ethics and and uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. you know some of this other stuff. So okay, this is a future project, future project. But I think your answer is a really good one. By the way, I'm curious, have you read Thoreau's, Henry David Thoreau's Walden? Um, I started to many, 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 many decades ago um, and got sidetracked and never did get back to it. It's on my list for things to do, but I've been operating at such high a pace for so many years. There's just not enough hours in the day. You know, that's definitely on my list. And I know about it. I know, you know, I've talked to studied about it in many classes and uh, you know but i've never had the actual work yeah so if you if i if i'm now being tasked to read ender's game i'm gonna give you i'll give you that assignment and um yeah i think it's a really misunderstood book i think people read it really quickly in 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 a cursory way and it missed the whole point but i i think you would resonate a lot with it it's definitely one of the most important books in my life which almost sometimes feels like a weird thing to say because, again, I do think people are like, yeah, yeah, I sort of read it in high school and, like, that's a weird... Right, but they weren't ready for it in high school. And then they put it yep. and they figured that was a kid's book. Got to read it. I think I think it will resonate uh, in a pretty big way. And, and man, talk about... I, again, I, I've got a lot of facility in the history of philosophy. And if we're talking about things like the good life, literally I put Walden above every other work of philosophy I've ever read. These days, what is it that you are currently finding yourself most passionate about or obsessed with or excited about? It's going to be a multi, multi-answer <laughs> because my life is many multifaceted. I, I, my biggest problem in life is narrowing it down. Um, but I'm, I'm really excited about the book, of course. Not so much about, about this book, but about writing in general. 
and that will always continue. That's what I've always wanted to do all my life, and I've worked towards that, and now it's finally happening, and uh, that is really exciting. And music, I so long to get back to to performing music. Um, I, you know, I conducted for four years in West Sacramento, and I, that was such a kick such a such a heady experience it's something i always wanted to do you know i grew up watching leonard bernstein and 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 all the biggies were in new york you know and i'd go to see them in the park and in summers and things and so that that's always been an overarching passion of my life and i'd love to get back to doing piano recitals here and i'd love to get back to playing in an orchestra um but all of these things require a lot of time and so right now i can't do them because i'm completely taken by this book project, you know, the book tour. And I, again, I want to climb all over the world. I want to climb in the Dolomites. I want to climb in China. I want to climb. There are beautiful rocks all over the world. And I love climbing and I love traveling and I love using my languages and they all feed each other, you know, in the same kind of sport. Um, I go abroad, I climb, I use my languages, <laughs> you know, same kind of trip. Um, so all of those things, uh, you know, I'm not a unipassioned kind of person, <laughs> if you want to call it that. I think that's another sign that uh, you're handling your life in a good way when it's like there's so many things that I would love to do, it, truly, not just talk about it, but would truly right, right. love to do. I'm, I'm going to have to live to about 150, get, get down all the things <laughs> I'm going to do. <laughs> um, that's great. Um, so... Then yes, this this book is. It, are are you embarking on something like a book tour, or or what's what's about to happen here? Um, okay, the book just came out, and I've been working with my publicist at Mountaineers Books. You know, it's a, they're the publisher of the book who's up in Seattle. Uh, every day we work on honing this program. Um, yes, I'm about to leave. Uh, next week, I think I'm still here regionally. I'll be speaking at several different places. I'll be speaking at Travis Air Force Base and at a, a bookstore up in the hills, you know, the Gold Hills. And then I go, uh, I head south and I'll be speaking in, I don't know, four or five, six, seven, whatever number of places in uh, the Southern Cal area, you know, the LA area, Pasadena, uh, LA, Santa Monica, and and then I'm going down to San Diego, a few places down there, and then I'm going to stop, uh, speak at a few places on the central coast on the way back up north. And so we're focusing on California right now, and then after that we're going to spread it out to include like Las Vegas, Colorado, Salt Lake City, Seattle, Portland. Well, Deirdre, this has really been a pleasure, and. Um... I really, really encourage people to read The Sharp End of Life. And I'm going to be picking up a copy, one for my mother, for Mother's Day. I think she's going to love this book. She's terrific. And and you two actually share, she is an accomplished pianist, but also grew up in rural Maine. And so grew up, like, plays the accordion, but is also like a so very... <laughs> yeah, well, I read that in your book, and I was like, my goodness, this is... Uh, <laughs> Um, and my, my, well, it's too bad that I can't drop by and sign the book for her. <laughs> I know she would, she would love it. And she was reading Shackleton books, you know, before I ever, you know, had any no. interest in any of this stuff. So she, so she's an adventurer at heart at heart. Yeah. And, uh, and a pretty tough woman. And, um, there were things about 
the way that you were brought up that reminded me a bit about her own upbringing and then then with all the connections to to music but she's somebody who if you veered off to go climb she still um, is playing a ton all the time but anyway uh, so yeah that will be uh, a little gift to her for Mother's Day will be your book and and uh, also to my girlfriend I think she's gonna resonate with this story a lot um, Deirdre I hope I hope we can do this again sometime and uh, again thanks so much for this time you're welcome uh, thanks for having me that's it for this edition of the blister podcast thanks to Deirdre for the conversation and you can order her book the sharp end of life a mother's story online or request it from your local bookstore and if you are enjoying conversations like the one you just heard you should also be sure to check out our other shows on the blister podcast network which in addition to the blister podcast includes gear 30 off the couch all things climbing and our newest podcast bikes and big ideas where our first episode will be airing a little bit later this week You can find all of these podcasts on the Blister website or your favorite podcast player, app, or platform. Thanks, everybody. Please take good care out there. And happy Mother's Day to all the great moms out there who put up with us and love us and encourage us and who continue to set a good example for us by continuing to expand their comfort zones and learn new things and explore. Thank you.